Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Wendy Seifert and welcome to the Anxiety Hour. This is a podcast where we take a closer look at our own mental health and examine how it informs our past, present and future. Today we're speaking to Mojo Juju, a musician and performer whose work explores identity, culture and personal history. Born to an Indigenous mother and Filipino father, her work explores her own family and how pressure to assimilate has impacted them over generations. Like all our episodes, this chat touches on some pretty heavy themes around mental health. Please be conscious of that if you've been affected by these topics in your own life. Well, we may as well start with the title of the podcast. We're obviously talking about anxiety. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your relationship with it? I've got a long history with anxiety and depression. Um, I guess I've tried many forms of, of managing that, but it's like an ongoing thing, you know, uh, and I think it's it's something that... I've got a bit of a family history of as well. So, I don't know. I think when I was growing up, you know, it was always something that no one really talked about. But I think it's becoming much more... Well, there's less stigma around it and I feel pretty comfortable speaking very openly about my experiences of that. Um, I've never really had anxiety around performing more recently, yeah, I've, I've had a little kind of resurgence of anxiety around performing and it's strange because I've been performing so long. That's really interesting. I guess as a non-performer, my first instinct when I talk to people about this stuff for this show is, God, you must feel so nervous every time you have to get in front of people. <laughs> but tell me about that. It is really funny. I feel like stage is somewhere that I feel very comfortable because I know how things are going to play out it's an environment where I feel like I have a lot of control you know whereas when you're out in the world day to day you have less control maybe that's an element of why I have less anxiety around performance than I do in sort of other social situations or whatnot but yeah recently I have sort of in the last two years I just had a really rough <laughs> kind of I had a really rough couple of years where things, a lot of things were going on in my personal life and I sort of started to struggle with depression, which in a way that I hadn't for a really long time and part of that was feeling a lot of anxiety around large groups of people. Any situation where I felt like, you know, all eyes are on me and so I started experiencing anxiety around performing sort of towards the end of 2017, at the start of 2018. And I feel like I'm starting to, to get a pretty good handle on it again and I'm doing more shows and I'm feeling much more comfortable. But, 
yeah, earlier this year I was I was really struggling with going on stage because I felt like I wasn't well and I didn't want to I felt very exposed being on stage. I think the feeling of anxiety can be so amorphous, but in a situation like that where it's tied to something that you've been doing for so long and feel so comfortable with, what were you actually, I guess, afraid of? Just feeling exposed or just feeling that people were looking at me and judging me or that I wasn't capable of giving my best performance and I wasn't able to do my job to the best of my ability. Well, that's how I felt at the time. And I didn't want... I didn't want to be on stage. I didn't want people looking at me. I didn't want to become vulnerable, you know, or expose myself. Like, so much of what I do, so much of the new material that I've been writing in particular is so deeply personal that I felt vulnerable in a way that I had not maybe before as a performer. You know, it's performance and this is fiction or there's an element of fiction, like enough. I'd always kept enough kind of in between me and the audience, whereas now I feel like I'm actually telling a very personal side of my story, a very, I've allowed myself to be much more personal on my newer material than I ever have before. Yeah, and I guess you open up a whole different part of yourself to be vulnerable about. Mm. When you write an album like this, which, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about across our interview, which is obviously about your family and your past and your parents. I mean, it's so much to get those emotions to the front to even just write the songs and record them. How do you then start preparing yourself to perform them again and again and again and then kind of get onto that train, that performance train? <laughs> well, <laughs> I just did I just did five nights in a row at the Art Centre last week where I presented my album in full uh, to predominantly, yeah, sold-out audiences every night. And um, and not only was I performing the album and playing, like, excerpts of interviews that I've done with different family members, I was also telling the stories. Like, I was giving context to the album by telling personal stories about my family and about my own experience growing up in, you know, regional Australia as a queer person of colour. So I was telling these really personal details of my life and on some level it was very cathartic. But on another level, I was like, this is going beyond art. Like if someone dislikes your art and they can critique that work and you can kind of distance yourself from it because it's subjective but when you are telling a personal story and someone wants to critique that it you know that's it's so much harder so much harder to hear that criticism you mentioned before the idea of like the stage is a a world that you create yourself to Mm -hmm. be your own space something that obviously your work in this new album in particular kind of deals with is this idea of your mom is Indigenous, your dad's Filipino, kind of being from these backgrounds and then not really knowing culturally where you belong. Mm. Does that kind of sense of, I mean, it's an overused word, but I guess disconnection 
How does that feature into your your experience with anxiety and mental health? Oh, I think that it's a huge part of it. Like I always felt displaced and otherized. As a kid, um, you know, I experienced a lot of bullying. I was always different. And we moved around a lot when I was growing up, so I was always trying to fit in as a new kid in town, which was pretty stressful at a young age. And always being like, oh, you're Asian or you're, you know, you're Aboriginal or you're this or you're that, my name, because we've got, you know, uh, a Spanish surname, as many Filipinos do. So no one could pronounce that. It was a long, Ruiz de Lusuriaga. I was like, of course. I was like, I was just ripe for whatever, <laughs> you know. I was pretty fair game for any kind of racial slur. And that was extremely stressful. I remember being, you know, I, like fortunately I had very supportive family members and all of that. But even still, I don't think... My parents fully grasped how stressful that was as a kid. And then as a teenager, sort of as I grew into my own identity, realising, oh, I'm actually, you know, um, I'm actually queer. Uh, and I did, I got outed. I didn't even sort of come out. I was outed and that was like quite traumatic. And I don't know, I guess, I guess I was experiencing depression and anxiety from a very young age but it was there was still a lot of stigma around mental health and it wasn't until I was probably about 16 or 17 that my parents even considered that I might need someone to talk to about something like that and even still like into you know adulthood I didn't necessarily seek out kind of support in that way it's only something I've done sort of as I've gotten older, like maybe in my late 20s I started going, oh, I think I need therapy. I think I need someone to sort of help me manage this because um, I think around my late 20s I had a really bad anxiety attack that I think a lot of people probably relate to these kind of symptoms. I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought, I, thought, I thought I had angina. I was like, you know, I, I woke up in the middle of the night. I had jaw pain. I had chest pain. I had arm, like pain in my arm. Uh, I couldn't breathe, like breathe deeply. I was, I thought I had a, I was having a heart attack. And of course, you know, I did what any sane person would do. And as I went on to the internet and I started Googling all of the symptoms <laughs> of, of angina, <laughs> I was like, okay, I've got to call an ambulance. I am having a heart attack. And uh, luckily I had a friend with me who was like, I'm pretty certain you are having an anxiety attack. Let's do these things first and kind of helped me through that. And then I um, calmed right down after a little bit and I I went to the doctor the next day and got a full checkup and they went, no, you're all good. You're in very good health what you've experienced is a panic attack and here's some ways to sort of help yourself. And then from there I was like, okay, I need to like learn how to manage this because uh, that is, you know, that's not something that I want to experience. What triggered that first panic attack? 
I think I was just overworked and um, I don't know, maybe I probably wasn't dealing with stress so well. It was around a similar time that a friend of mine had um, actually passed away under some pretty violent circumstances. So I was dealing with with that. Around that time, I think I had some struggling with certain family members. Like my my father's parents are quite conservative and I think there's always been a little bit of... They just didn't really understand me or who I, who I was or, you know, how I was in the world and so there was a lot of tension in that respect. If you're interested in how people manage points of crisis, you should check out Extremes, another Vice podcast hosted by Vice.com editor Julian Morgans. He meets people who have experienced incredible events, like being the lone survivor of a plane crash. There were accelerating motors, and then there's another even bigger, gigantic drop, and then the people were screaming. And we looked at each other, and he stretched out, he grabbed for my hand, I grabbed his. And then everything went black. I read somewhere that you said that to help you guys assimilate, your dad was quite keen that you spoke English and didn't have that connection to language. Mm. That really struck me as being a pretty impactful thing to be missing from your own past. Yeah. I think it's very common for... um, probably people of my generation who are children of immigrants. Like, I think it was a big deal to assimilate. And I I don't know. I Like, I'm, that's an assumption I'm making just from conversations I've had with other people who are similar in age and have similar backgrounds. But um, I also I do know that my father's family tried to immigrate to Australia several times. Uh, but were rejected due to the white Australia policy. And so it wasn't until the 80s that he got here, and I'm pretty sure, like, sort of by that time, you know, him being here, I think he just wanted to fit in. And he definitely had experiences where people made assumptions about him, like when he first applied for work in Australia, people, you know, saw his resume and assumed that one... He didn't speak English. Two, that he's, uh, because he was educated in the Philippines and he had a university education in the Philippines, but that that wasn't going to be to the standard of an Australian university. And, yeah, that he didn't have, you know, uh, there was also the assumption made that he, he didn't have the right to live and work in Australia. So I think he really probably, you know, I think he probably wanted us to just not have to deal with that kind of stuff, those kind of prejudices. And if you spoke English, you know, then... And obviously, of course, growing up in Australia, we were going to speak English anyway, but I think he just avoided... There's probably not a huge cause for him outside of the family to ever speak Spanish, Tagalog, or Ilongo. My dad speaks four languages fluently and we only speak one 
And I think that was because he was like, you know, you just, you're better off just speaking English. I feel like often our parents, when they kind of make these decisions, they're they're taking all the pressure and the pain that they went through and they're kind of obviously trying to protect us from it. But they sort of pass on these, yeah, these anxieties and these fears to us in different ways. Do you feel, how do you feel you carry your dad's choices there or how did that affect you longer term? Oh, look, I think I... I definitely have a longing to sort of connect deeper with his culture and and know more and understand more about it. And I've had to go and do that as an adult on my own. Uh, my brother, Steve, who also plays in my band, um, and we write a lot together, but he's sort of... He, went, he has spent a lot of time kind of learning... Uh, He learnt Spanish, he speaks quite fluently, and he uh, is learning Tagalog at the moment. My mum is actually learning Wiradjuri for the first time in her life now. She's just enrolled to study, uh, to learn her own language. Um, It is interesting how much language kind of, you know, means in terms of your connection to your culture. Uh, I think... I probably ca- I I think that my dad has experienced a lot of anxiety and depression and I've definitely inherited some of that. I don't know if that's just like if that's learnt or if that's you know, if that's nature or or it's nurture, you know, I don't know. I d- I definitely think my mom experiences a lot of anxiety, just her personality type of definitely seen that they don't neither of them deal with stress like probably incredibly well but they I think they internalize it and I think that I have a tendency to do the same ready to pop the question the jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You mentioned before that you were outed, which I didn't realise, and I'm obviously so sorry that that happened. When you're kind of talking about growing up in the sense of feeling displaced and not knowing where you belong, when you kind of did start engaging with your queer community, did that add to the sense of... Did it give you a feeling that you did find somewhere that you could connect to, or was it kind of another layer of identity that you had to start trying to piece together well actually the funny thing is and it's kind of sad now that I you know think about it and I have spent time thinking about it um even more recently but I think I had a lot of internalized racism and a lot of internalized homophobia for a really long time um 
for a super long time. If people asked me where I was from, I would tell them that I was Spanish because I got a Spanish surname and it's less I don't I don't know. I just like I didn't you know the the parts of my features that I didn't like were the you know things that I th- I guess I thought on some level were oh, I, I look too Asian or something. You know? Um it's just really horrible and and sad but same in terms of queerness i i had this deep kind of like internalized homophobia where I, for a really long time i used to always say oh i only date like straight looking women or i only date straight women and i would not go to gay bars i did not connect with that community at all for a really long time and it wasn't until again, like till I was in my mid twenties, that I actually met, um, you know, a bunch of people from the queer community in Sydney, and really connected with them, and felt for the first time in my li- first time in my life that I really wanted to embrace that part of my identity, and felt comfortable to. There was always a queer community that I could have kind of locked into, and I just didn't. And I think that's really sad. I I have no doubt that that has contributed to, you know, my mental health at times when I was younger, for sure. How did your parents and siblings help you contextualise these experiences? What did they kind of say to you to explain why people were treating you like this? You know, actually... When I was around, like, kindergarten age, I was... This is one of the earliest recollections I have of being bullied and otherized. And kids were, like, calling me, oh, Ching Chong, Chinaman, or, you know, whatever. It was, like, Asian kind of slurs. And I was... I didn't really understand why that was offensive, and I didn't... I knew that it was intended to hurt me. Uh, But I remember going home to my grandmother being really upset and she just sort of pulled out. She pulled out the encyclopedia because it was (laughs) pre-internet and we looked up China and she was like, like, they can't hurt you saying that because there's no shame in it. Like Chinese people are beautiful. That's a beautiful thing to be. Um, they, you know, she just kind of, I guess that was her way of just sort of like we, we read about China. We looked at pictures of China. We looked at Chinese people in the, you know, in the, look at all these books or whatever. And she sort of helped me to kind of understand the bigger picture of like these kids. This is probably the biggest place they've ever been to. And, some of these kids will never travel outside of this town. So, you know, there's a whole world out there and there's lots of people like you in it. That's so interesting as well. Like, you think about these insults we tell, we give each other as kids and so many of them are like, that's not even an insult, that's just a statement about a different place. Mm. Yeah. Um. I think my grandmother experienced it a lot because when she was growing up, uh, she didn't really know. 
She knew she was. She knew she looked different. That she didn't know that her father was indigenous. She knew her father, but it wasn't until her mother passed away that it was confirmed that oh, no, he was your. He was actually your dad. And so, um, that was like a big story for her. And I think she experienced a lot of racism when she was a kid, but didn't even have a sense of her own identity that she could kind of own and, you know, take, yeah, well, take ownership of. That's interesting. So it's kind of a, a hereditary story in your family of feeling disconnected from yeah. place. Yep, definitely. Like all my life, yeah, I remember my mom and my auntie kind of doing all the work that they could to sort of learn more about their own family, which is sad, but also incredible that you know, they're so committed to it and that they were able to kind of um, learn as much as they have and, you know, s- sort of make sure that, that all of that family history didn't get just lost to time. You mentioned that your family doesn't talk very much, but is there kind of a quiet understanding between you that you probably all do share these kind of similar feelings from the shared history? Yeah. I mean, uh, like, again, like I just did this show uh, for five nights at the Art Centre and I really go there. Like I talk about all of this in the show and my family do show up. Like they did, they come to so many gigs, but my my parents were in the audience. I had a cry <laughs> on one particular night because my mum was sitting like front and centre and, um, yeah, I think they were really proud. Like, they were really happy to hear those stories told that way. But there's still, like, this real stoic kind of, oh, it's very good, we're very proud of you. But, like, not, not a lot more in terms of insight into how they were feeling. You kind of mentioned your mum has made a big effort to go through and understand her own Indigenous history. I think I read somewhere before that you said kind of getting involved in that side of your heritage gave you a sense of purpose. It's been an incredible journey. Like, I feel very much at home here in Australia. Like, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. And I guess when I was growing up, I always identified myself as a Filipino-Australian because um, people saw me as Asian or, you know... Um, I knew that my father was Filipino I knew that side of the history and so but I didn't really understand or know very much about my mum's family so it was harder to identify with that but then I went to the Philippines and I was like oh my god I have no idea what it's like living in a developing nation I don't know what it's like to live in Southeast Asia and you go there and they're all like Oh, whitey, like, you know, or like, you know, you, you're from Australia, though. You're from Australia. And and I was like, oh, okay. So I don't really belong here either. And then I come home and I'm like, okay, like, this is home. I feel so connected to the landscape here. I feel very, like, deep connection to this place. And I was like, I think, you know, I need to learn about my people I think I need to learn about what connects me to here. And so, you know, obviously I still very much 
um, identify with my Filipino heritage and I have so much family in the Philippines still and I am doing more and more to learn about pre-colonial Philippines and like the history of the history of the Philippines and the history of um, the people there I'm also doing the same here you know because we didn't grow up learning like you don't get taught any indigenous history at school you don't know about First Nations cultures there's so many nations that make up this so-called Australia and you can see it on like a bigger scale like this there's so much hurt there's so many wounds yeah I definitely feel the gravity of it the importance of of learning this and kind of keeping things like language alive and sort of seeking out to know more about yeah my own people so yeah there is a purpose I think there is a purpose and there is a real sense of responsibility to do that for next generation you know you hear a lot of second-generation Australians going back and kind of expecting to have this awakening and then they don't get it and there's, like, this, like, pretty heavy sense of melancholy being like, well, I always dreamed I would belong here and I came here and I didn't belong. But that's actually really lovely that you sort of had the inverse version of that when you saw where you belonged at home. Yeah. It's still it's still a journey. There's still definitely times where I feel like, I'm not entitled to step into certain parts of my own identity, but I'm trying to overcome that because I think that's just, you know, that is, that's a side effect of being, you know, always being otherized, but then never feeling like you own any of your identity. Um, like, you're not Asian enough, or you're not black enough, you're not white enough, you're definitely not white enough. And I think, yeah, as I've grown older, I'm like, oh, like, I think, yes, I want to tread carefully and be respectful because I don't want to take, I don't want to take away um, any of that platform from other people, like particularly Indigenous people, particularly First Nations people who have grown up in culture and have a deeper understanding of it I don't want to take away time and space from them to speak you know but I definitely feel like oh my my story has value my story is important and because not because it makes me special actually because it's really common and there's a lot of people who have the same story that I have there's a lot of people who have the same sense of longing and disconnect and I'm sure a lot of people who struggle with their mental health as a result of those things. And so, yeah, I feel like kind of this empowerment to step into and own my own, all the all the different things that make up my identity is a way of kind of overcoming those anxieties and, and those feelings of depression. We've talked about you, the anxiety you've kind of had most recently in terms of performing, growing up, things that affected you as a kid. With so much going on, though, I mean, in your day-to-day life, what is it that you find yourself just trying to navigate on the most base level to kind of function and be happy? For me, it was 
kind of in the last couple of years I had that and my brother was who's been going you know through a difficult time with his mental health and then um and trying to be supportive of him but at the same time I was going through you know I w- my partner and I were trying to do IVF and over a couple of years and it wasn't successful and then that sort of led to the breakdown of our relationship and that you know there was all this pressure on us as individuals and the way that we were communicating and then that obviously over time because that became not an ideal it was a stressful situation and that kind of impacted on my capacity to deal with other things you know work related things you know usually if it's just one or the other you kind of you can have support from your relationship to deal with the work situation or if your relationship you know if you're going through a relationship breakdown you still have a sense of purpose and and drive with your work or whatever and you know it's not to say that you don't struggle but you kind of have other things to give you you know either whether it be like routine or order or um support or purpose whereas i just sort of felt like everything <laughs> was falling apart and i didn't have the same support networks that i was like accustomed to having um because i couldn't sort of call on certain family members or i couldn't um rely on you know or fall into like the support of my relationship or i couldn't um focus on my work i was i was watching everything sort of falling apart a little bit and so that just that was an extremely difficult experience for me but it came down to like the simplest things of like having to prepare meals was just all of a sudden an overwhelming task or like having to answer phone calls was just completely unfathomable i just didn't want to deal with emails or phone calls or anything like that i very much retreated into my own you know my own head and like withdrew i think from a lot of my social networks but i i was able to you know i luckily have a very supportive kind of community who I think people sort of were able to recognise, oh, you're not doing very well. Maybe you should, you know, try this or, like, you know, do you want to come and do this? And I think I was able to, through all of that, actually go, oh, yeah, I probably need to do these things, like get a mental health care plan in order and actually... Um, have certain things set up so that I'm able to kind of, I guess, start rebuilding and just, like, pull myself out of that hole. Do you feel like you kind of are still in that hole? Um, No. I think that I'm, you know, at the moment um, through therapy and also medication, like I hadn't previously done that before. Um, But, yeah, you know, the other thing is for me is exercise. So, um, big. I, I I do Muay Thai, and that's my thing, and I really enjoy it. And I kind of, as I got depressed, I was like unable to. Like I just, you know, did not have the energy to do that. And I think not only is it a sense of community, but like it's a really great outlet, and all the endorphins that you get from doing those things really 
help in terms of your general overall motivation and your mental health and a sense of routine I think routine helps me to kind of and it's really hard to find that when you're an artist and your schedule is like so far from routine (laughs) Um, but just you got to just hold on to the little things that you can have like my you know my coffee in the morning is like the thing that I look forward to Um, you know and just certain things that I do to kind of know okay I got this like that's my thing I'll hold on to that and everything else can be going crazy but I have like something that I know is going to happen every single day and that's yeah it's a good thing I think that's really interesting because people often talk about I think mental health but also creativity in the same way that it's like the spiritual journey that you have to go on and do all the soul searching but the reality is a lot of the time yeah it's about routine and tasks and sticking to things I think that there is this myth that artists have to experience pain and that that artists you know that that like your mental health suffering is it's really just par for for the course or like you know if you don't have chaos then how can you make art and I think you know we all buy into that at some point even as artists you do and I think when I was younger I was like you know caution to the wind and just like going off and having adventures and really like probably partying too hard and you know smoking and drinking and taking drugs and all of these things that inevitably over time have an impact on your mental health and you know I thought that that was just what you had to do as an artist to make good art and then you get to a point where you're like this is so ridiculous good health overall is actually a really important part of being able to be good at your art To pivot from a very positive point to maybe a slightly darker one, what is your biggest fear? <laughs> My biggest fear? I don't know. I don't dwell on <laughs> on fear too much. Uh, I think it's probably just like most people, the fear of being alone, like the left behind, like not having um, people to... Or the you know your loved ones, you know to uh, I don't know maybe I'm revealing far too much about myself, <laughs> but I think it's like pretty natural to like you, you know fear that people are got, you know are not going to be there for you or that they that they don't care, and I've definitely had fear that I would never reach my potential or you know that my that my work wasn't good enough, and I think. You know, with all of it, I, I'm able to recognise that uh, it's really, it's not a rational fear, as with most fear. It's like, this is totally irrational. I'm actually, you know, um, you treat people well, people will treat you well. And likewise, if you work hard and you're committed to what you do, then you make good work. My deeper self knows that. You spent so much time and energy and emotional energy understanding where your place is it's pretty natural that you would be afraid of losing that place yeah I think so but I also feel like I'm very aware that like I said before these aren't stories like this 
you know, my story doesn't make me special or different. I think my story is so common and that in itself kind of, I, I guess that I find some kind of solace in that there is a whole, you know, there's, there's so many people out there that have such a similar story and even though it's not told to you as the kind of the the main narrative this is not the australian narrative it's like actually there's so many people in this country right that have that are like first generation second generation third culture first nations like who have very similar experiences with identity Yeah, absolutely. I think especially when we're little kids, you kind of get sold this idea that you want to be like special and unique, one of a kind. But the reality is like you're so much happier if you just feel ordinary with a bunch of other people having the same experiences. (laughs) Yeah, I can't imagine what it feels like to be, you know, imagine being like Beyonce (laughs) and you just like, no, there's just no other Beyonce. There's no other Beyonce. I'm pretty happy to never be that good. There's something to be said for being a little bit ordinary. I'm good with how ordinary I am. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Anxiety Hour. If you need someone to talk to, mental health support is available 24 hours a day through Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 and at lifeline.org.au. This episode of The Anxiety Hour was hosted by me, Wendy Seifert, produced by Laura Appelt with editing, mixing and mastering by Jeff O'Connor. Our series producer is Katie Roberts, and post-production coordinator is Pia Caridi. Special thanks to the whole Vice podcast family. Remember to check out our other shows, Extremes and Violent Times, wherever you get your podcasts. Next week on The Anxiety Hour, we'll meet musician, writer, and motivational speaker, Andrew W.K. He'll tell us about what he calls his anxiety 24 hours and how partying can be an emotional salvation. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.